Yeah, welcome back to the Cobble Show, episode 116, mm-hmm. Ray. Oh, yes. uh, how, how are you, Ray? Surprisingly, a lot like I was last week. Um, doing good. How are you? What's the weather like in vagina Today, right now? Is it uh, still... We got lucky. Beautiful weather. Got up to uh, 80. Very warm, sunny, breezy, freaking gorgeous. I did not want the day to end. That's how I like my vagina. Virginia. Mm. Shit. Virginia. Virginia. Sorry, Virginia. Last time on the show, Ray, Mm -hmm. I'm fine too, by the way. Uh, We, um, thanks for asking. Uh, Last time on the show, we uh, talked about uh, some of the background to the, the kind of red scares in America Long, long, long time before World War Two, mm-hmm. long time before Stalin or, or the Russians right. uh, purged their own people or invaded a country. Just the very hint that Americans might be thinking about overthrowing their government uh, had Americans running around screaming, the sky is falling, <laughs> the Russians are coming. Right. Um, because as we said last time, one revolution good – Two revolution, bad. <laughs> One civil war, good. Two civil war, right. bad. Right. One revolution, you know, we, we're very proud of. Oh, yeah. You can be very proud oh, of yeah. that. You, you know, Books, you movies, celebrate it. Plays. Celebrated. Hamilton. Loved. Yeah. Beloved. Absolutely. Hamilton. Yep. Musicals, Broadway musicals. Yeah. Uh, uh, One civil war, extremely proud. Mm-hmm. Unless you're from the Monuments. South. Extremely proud. Right. Yeah, Statues, monuments, yeah. Like big monuments, like huge oh, statue huge. of Lincoln, like a oh. god sitting on a throne right. in Washington, D.C. You just pissed off half um, this country, but that's fine. Don't worry about it. Boy, what did I say now? You said fucking Lincoln. Look, let me, let me give you an example. The race that I was just in, the uh, six-mile six race in Richmond, Virginia, you go up and down one street and on that street, there are at least three, maybe four Confederate general monuments. I lie not. You have, we're all forced to run around Confederate general monuments. So what, so what did I you say? You said Lincoln sitting there like a god? Are you fucking crazy? He is. Have you seen that statue, dude? Somebody, <laughs> somebody on Facebook... One of our listeners uh, was there you. recently, yeah. and they posted a photo of it, and I was like, looks, fuck me, he just looks, looks like, like a god sitting exactly. on a throne. Yeah, yeah, he looks like Zeus yeah. sitting on judging, a throne in Olympus. Silently judging you. Judging. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's magnificent uh, sculpture, don't get me wrong, but it's very, very religious-y. Like, right. it should be sitting in the middle of the uh, Parthenon right. on top of the Acropolis Absolutely. in Athens, like, just looking down one, upon the people. One day, my friend, it will be. <laughs> so anyway, we uh, we were talking about all the strikes. We were in the last episode, and I mentioned at the end of the last episode that in uh, 1919 there was this bombing right. that happened in the United States. Now we have talked about this before three years ago. By the way, this bombing happened 100 years ago to the day. Wow. Well, maybe. For you. No, it was, uh, you know, the, the the discovery of the plot was 100 years ago, April. Still. But then the, there were some actual bombings, but they happened a few months later. Still. I want to play that clip just for shits and giggles. So um, just bear with me while I find the mm-hmm. 
starting point of that. There, why, why bother talking again when we can just play back ourselves talking three years ago? It's my right. theory. The American military establishment from being able to fight in World War One, or trying to convince people not to join the army or to to get out right. of the war, um, and then. What happened after the war is there was a number of bomb threats. There was terrorism in the United States. Mm -hmm. In April 1919, uh, the the US authorities discovered a plot for mailing 36 bombs to prominent members of the US political and economic establishment, including J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, and U.S. Attorney uh, General Alexander Mitchell Palmer, who you mentioned earlier, various yeah. other immigration officials. Um, they discovered this before it went down, so that was okay. But then a few months later, June of 1919, June 2nd, in eight cities, eight bombs simultaneously exploded. They'd been sent to mm. government officials who had endorsed anti-sedition laws and the deportation of immigrants. Damn. Yeah. But again, those people, those people that you mentioned, I, I seriously doubt if they open their own mail. You know, I mean, you're, you're going to hurt someone. You're going to hurt some lackey. But again, I guess it's the point of well, terrorizing had, those who sponsor yeah, legislation. They, they probably still had it's, Negro servants. Opening their mail. Probably did. Probably uh, did. So you're hurting the wrong people, dumbasses. Yeah, well, here's the thing. None of the people that they were sent to actually died. Um, I think there was uh, one one bomber died uh, when the bomb blew up <laughs> when it shouldn't have. But here's the thing. Right. None of this, none of these, uh, either the, the 36 bombs or the eight bombs that actually went off, were the work of communists or socialists. Mm. This was the work of Luigi Galliani, who was an Italian anarchist um, and so had nothing to do with, with you know, the Bolsheviks or communism or socialism, right. but that's not going to stop them rounding up the communists on the no. pretext that they, well, they were probably supportive of it, yeah. if nothing else. Yeah. Um, so one, uh, one of the targets of the eight bombs, as I said, was uh, Attorney General Palmer's house. Where This is the one where the explosion actually killed the bomber, who was another Italian-American radical, this one, uh, a guy from Philadelphia. So afterwards, Palmer orders the U.S. Justice Department to launch the Palmer Raids, uh, which mm. go from 1919 to 1921. They were a series of raids intended to capture, arrest, and deport radical leftists from the United States. Now, they're called raids. I like this. If, you know, when these things happen in the USSR, they're called purges. Right. Uh, which is actually, was it, yeah, there was a term in the Bolshevik party when they got rid of uh, uh, people from the Bolshevik ranks that they didn't think were loyal enough. They were called purging mm-hmm. the party, but then it generally came to mean whenever they rounded up people who weren't loyal, uh, it was right. purges. But, in, but when we talk about it in the US, we call them raids, which to me is a lot less uh, emotionally explosive yeah. terminology Sanitized. than purges. Sanitized, yeah. that's right. But yeah. uh, here's the thing. It's interesting to me that it's going on in the US at the same time it's going on in Russia, even before, really. I mean, this is the, still the civil wars going on in Russia during this time. Uh, later on, it happens in under Stalin, where he rounds up anyone he doesn't think is loyal to the regime, and we hear a lot mm-hmm. about that. Oh well, under 
under Stalin and either in the USSR or under Soviet-controlled East Germany, people would just come and round you up and put you in prison if you weren't loyal. Disappear. Yeah, right. if, if you didn't move. But we don't – how often do we hear about the fact that this happened – in the United States, uh, right. in in you know the early part of the twentieth century as well. Well, that's us. What, what is it? That, that's is that weird hearing us it from three years weird. ago, right? Yes. Do we sound weird. any different? I don't think we sound any I, different. I, we sound exactly I, the same. I think we're so much better. That's probably not true. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that, I, what I laughed about that is when you went. Whoosh, <laughs> I I laughed now exactly at the same time and in the same way as I laughed three years ago. My really? reaction was exactly the same. Yeah, really? yeah. I was like, good com- good commentary there, right? Yeah. Your commentary is like, <laughs> wow. wow. Hey, so yeah. mm. well, I, I just wanted to ask that clip reminded me of something I meant to bring up in the first episode and did not. Um, as we're going to see. And, it, and it's already started happening, is that the communists, the socialists, the anarchists, and anybody else who wants to change the American government, they do all get lumped together. They are all going to be called radicals. And in your opinion, was that probably, at least in part, um, something that was intentional by the rich white guy club? Just uh, we can't have anybody seen as moderate, some be seen as a radical. We need all these people shut down. We need all these people blacklisted. So let's call them all radicals and group them together. Yeah, look, I, I, I doubt that they actually knew how to tell them apart mm-hmm. uh, back then a great deal. I mean, it, radicals were just radicals. Um, I don't think they really cared right, or, or understood much about your political philosophy or cared much, basically. If you, if you were trying to upset the apple cart, fuck you, we're coming after you because we like the apple cart just the way it right. is. We've been stacking these apples for uh, 150 years now to get them perfectly where we want them, don't come and fuck with our apple cart. Go get your own apple cart. Here's the reason I bring that up is because out of these bombings that we just covered brilliantly, you covered brilliantly three years ago, there is a legitimate, moderate, um, within within the legal means, American labor movement that is trying to improve the working conditions of the Americans. And that's fine and good. However, there are anarchists within it. <clears throat> there are anarchists within it who are using bombs and violence and, and threats and things like that. And so the entire American American labor movement that is behaving itself does get hijacked by the anarchists. And, and again, they all get labeled as radicals and as dangerous and as something that has to be purged, put in jail, deported or whatever. So there were those that were just trying to do better for fellow Americans. And there was those who were trying to overthrow the government, but they were all lumped together. And I don't think there's much the American labor movement could have done about that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that anyone in the genuine labor movement was sending bombs to people, but uh, I think these these bombings in particular weren't the result of labor struggles. They were right. they were anti deportation mm-hmm. bombings because uh, the people that were targeted were people that were directly involved in immigration related issues. Gotcha. Okay. So. Um, for a start, I wanted to say that at the time, this was the biggest conspiracy to commit political murder in the history of the United States wow. since... Wow, yes. 
I would say, the Civil War or the Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, which, which, which were, were political murder, let's be honest. Yes. Um, <clears throat> now, on April 29th, the first bomb arrived at the home of Thomas W. Hardwick, who had just left his seat as a U.S. senator from Georgia. Mm-hmm. He was living in Atlanta, bomb turned up. Now, he had helped pass the Anarchist Exclusion Act, which was aimed at deporting radical foreigners. Right. So it wasn't about fighting for better conditions for workers. It was targeting because of his role in trying to deport leftists. Uh, Unfortunately, the bomb didn't get to him. Fortunately for him, I guess, but it blew off the hands of his housekeeper, unfortunately. Right. Um, Probably Atlanta, probably an African-American woman, I'm guessing. Yes. Um, As we said in that clip, not not a single one of the bombs actually reached their intended victims. Um, And one of the reasons is that uh, a postal clerk in New York found that 16 of them hadn't been given enough stamps, so they were sitting on a shelf waiting for someone to come. Right, a postage on them. Jeez. Listen, we would love to forward this bomb <laughs> onto the Attorney General for you, but uh, unfortunately, uh, you're short. Yeah. I need another four cents. cents yeah, uh, thank you. The stamps. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, could you come and please come and pay your postage so we can ship this bomb to its destination for you as quickly as possible? Oh um, in other cases, the uh, guys sending the bombs were obviously semi-illiterate and had garbled some of the names on the packages or the addresses. So they were like, listen, we'd love to deliver this bomb, but uh, we we don't know this address. I don't know. Like number seven, Schlali Blali Street. Uh, There is no Schlali Blali Street. But the hit list was sophisticated and very targeted. So there was the Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Damn. Which I have to say, one of the greatest fucking names (laughs) we've come across so far. Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Oh, God. Uh, uh, Yeah, his parents either loved him or really fucking hated him. Just call him a mountain. Give him a name like that. Yeah. 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 That's actually, it's kind of a badass name, Lanton. By the way, best remembered, apart from his involvement in this, uh, as the guy, the, the judge that expelled... Eight members of the Chicago White Sox oh. for the uh, 1919 World Series yes. uh, thing that we talked about on the uh, War on Drugs wow. show. Yeah. When the uh, World Series was fixed, uh, rigged, fixed, fixed by by who? Oh, um, the the oh, I can't the Jew mafia guy. Is that right? Arnold Rothstein. Rothstein, yes. there we are. I felt Arnold bad Rothstein. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't. He was a Jew. He was, a Jew. Um, he, he was uh, named, Kennesaw was named after the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain in the American Civil War where his father had been wounded. Wow. That's why he mm. had the name Kennesaw Mountain Landers. God, that's a hell of a reason. <laughs> if you named your, you should name your children after one of your great battles, Ray. What would it be? Um, the battle to the, 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 get 
Cameron to pay yeah. you a day earlier because you need the yeah, money. Or the, the toilet bowl battle of pay, 2015. Or, pay, yeah. PayPal Day Harris. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't, doesn't have the no, same kind of ring. Not the same. Anyway, yeah, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, he had overseen more than 100 Espionage Act convictions, which were being used to deport immigrants oh, before the passing of the uh, Anarchist Exclusion Act. Right. Um, Senator Overman that we men- mentioned before, he was uh, on the list, as were four other members of Congress that had all been involved in deportations. The Secretary of Labor and the Federal Immigration Commissioner, who had been involved in passing the Anarchist Exclusion Act, were on the list. Right. So with the mayor and police commissioner of New York, and as I said in that clip, uh, John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan. But the but maybe the least famous person on the list was the 29-year-old, fat, balding head of the... Well, he wasn't the head. He was an agent at mm-hmm. the time of the Bureau of Investigation, Rame Finch. Ooh. Okay. Now, Finch had spent months chasing down a gang of Italian anarchists led by Luigi Galliani, who I mentioned right. on that clip. He was the founder of an underground newspaper called Cronica Subversiva, the mm. Subversive Chronicle. He had about 50 followers who took up his call for a violent revolution, political assassination. They were the ones that were sending the bombs. Um, now, Finch and a handful of his a- uh, fellow agents had arrested Galliani uh, before the bombs went off mm-hmm. just for running this underground newspaper. Right. And they were going to be deported under the new Anarchist Exclusion Act because they were calling for the overthrow of the government. Uh, Galliani had appealed and on his appeal, which was uh, distributed as a newsletter around places like uh, Connecticut, he signed it, The American Anarchists. It promised a coming storm of blood and fire. Deportation will not stop the storm from reaching these shores. Deport us. We will dynamite you. That was in January of 1919. Damn. Um, so then the bombs went off in June. Uh, more bombs went off uh, in June. Actually, there was a second round of bombs. Um, everyone, all, all of the targets escaped, but a night watchman uh, at the front of the house of a municipal judge in New York was killed. Um, uh, various other people were killed, including the bomber himself who tried to blow up Attorney General Palmer's right. house. Now, guess who lived across the road from Attorney General Palmer at the time? Who? Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Wow. And his uh, wife, Eleanor, Mm -hmm. who was in his late 30s at the time, Assistant Secretary of the US Navy. They were coming home from a late supper when the explosion shook the night, smashed out the windows of the Roosevelt house across the road. Um. And uh, Palmer was there when they got back. He was standing in the ruins of his house. Sidewalks were filled with shards of glass and broken branches and bits of flesh and bone, which they figured out, took them a long time, but they figured out that 
the bomber was a 23-year-old Italian immigrant, Carlo Valdinocci, right. who also uh, worked on the uh, underground newspaper, the Subversive Chronicle. Mm. Now, there was also in the wreckage at the front of Palmer's house a fresh threat against the government, which said, it is war, class war, and you were the first to wage it under cover of the powerful institutions you call order in the darkness of your laws. There will be bloodshed. We will not dodge. There will have to be murder. We will kill because it is necessary. There will have to be destruction. We will destroy to rid the world of your tyrannical institutions. And it was signed, the Anarchist Fighters. It started out poetic. Then it just got mean. Well, what do you think was driving these guys to, you know, set off these bombs, Ray? What were their what were their causes? What was the cause of Belli? Um, I guess in one way, it's well. And I was going to say it's almost the chicken and the egg. They're causing trouble, so they have to be deported. They don't want to be deported, so they're causing trouble. But I guess maybe they saw that uh, fellow countrymen were again um, being taken advantage of by the people who own the means of production. I'm assuming that. There was a lack of opportunity, a lack of political freedom, a lack of uh, uh, political opportunity. Um, I'm, assu- I'm assuming they're fighting the cause for the have-nots. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good summary. Like, these people um, had been part of the reform movement, uh, tr- you know, part of the strikes, organizing mm-hmm. the strikes, Pushing for uh, better conditions for workers, pushing for better equality, uh, socioeconomic equality, and they were labelled as uh, subversives and radicals Mm -hmm. by these institutions uh, and were going to be deported. They'd obviously gone to America for a better life, as we always hear. People come through Ellis Island, they're coming for a better life. They believe that there was more opportunity. They get to America, things aren't what they were promised things are tough right they they start fighting for better rights in the land of opportunity and the government says well we're going to deport you back to from whence you came yeah which obviously uh europe 1919 not a, not a fun place to be a lot of fucking trouble in europe at right. the end after the world war one um uh, and you've got mussolini ramping up in italy where these guys would have been going back the the, the fascists were on the rise mm-hmm um so yes so they decided that we well we tried legal, legal means. means there you go reminds me of of Castro in Cuba right yeah. well we tried to do it the way you told us to do go it go through the channels we yeah. we protested we went on strike we you know we we tried to use our legal means that didn't work so like you did in the American Revolution when you didn't get what you wanted <laughs> like you did in the American Civil War when you didn't get what you wanted, we decided that violence was the last recourse. Yeah. Um, but as we said before, one revolution, good, two revolution, yeah. bad. Because the one that's, this, the first one that won doesn't want any changes, like you've said before. If I could just add a couple things, you, you were saying either in this episode or the last episode that the year 1919 was very important um, all over, obviously, but certainly in America. So besides these strikes, besides these uh, these bombs that are going off, there are race riots in 24 urban areas in, uh, throughout the United States, in Charleston, South Carolina, where I was born, uh, in Chicago and other major cities. So there's race riots, there's race tension, there's fear of communists. But what really 
shakes up the American people to a degree, and this is kind of like with the uh, War on Drugs series, is when the Boston police themselves go on strike. And this is September of 1919. Now, again, these are not communists. These are not revolutionaries. They just wanted better wages and better working conditions. So they go on strike for two nights. There's no cops on the streets of Boston. And if you've ever been to Boston, trust me, that's a bad idea. There's a ton of fighting. There's a ton of crime. And there's several deaths. Right away, the newspapers label these cops who are, who are stri- striking for better wages. They call them agents of Lenin. They're, they equate them with the Bolsheviks of Russia. So again, if you try to do anything to upset the apple cart, you are going to be labeled the worst thing they can think of, and it just happens to be communists or Bolsheviks or Leninists, that kind of thing. And so states start passing laws against red flags, against certain expressions about um, changing the existing government of the United States. And the other ironic part of this is that the amendments to the Sedition Act of 1918 can't really be used anymore because the war is over. And so um, the Attorney General, Mitchell Palmer, tries to get a peacetime Sedition Act passed. But he can't. It's not going to work because you, you, need a, you really do need a state of emergency for that. So he tries, and he does to a degree, get states to pass their own Sedition Act. So, so Palmer is not giving up. He's going to fight this any way he can. And, and even though the war is over, this feel, probably feels like a, a war to a lot of the people in Washington. They're fighting against people who are trying to take away, who are trying to change, who are trying to bring down the American way of life and the American government. So Palmer orders the U.S. Justice Department. Remember, he's the attorney general um, and his house Mm -hmm. was bombed. He orders the Justice Department to launch what become known as the Palmer Raids, which I mentioned in that little clip. Now, uh, the young man who was put in charge of the Palmer Raids, Mm -hmm. there was a new division in the Bureau of Investigation known as the General Intelligence Division, GID, but was informally known as the Radical Division because its job was to disrupt the work of radicals, was a young 24-year-old man by the name of J. Edgar Hoover. Yes. Now, within three months of getting this job, Hoover apparently had files on more than 60,000 people. God. Plus at least as many files on the places where these people were gathering, the publications they were reading, the political points, uh, political groups that they had joined. Hoover was gearing up for the American counter-revolution. Yeah. He... He really was the point man for this war against the communists and the radicals. You can't really talk about America's fear of communism in the 20th century without talking about J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI because he was a big, big (laughs) part of it. Just as Harry Anslinger, as you said earlier, was the point man for the war on drugs, J. Edgar Hoover was the point man for the war on communism, domestic communism, domestic radicals. Now, funny thing is the Communist Party of the United States of America was only created on September the 7th in 1919. Mm. It was uh, born at the Russian Federation Hall in Chicago. And according to Tim Weiner's book on the FBI, at least five government agents attended the uh, first (laughs) meeting of the Communist Party. Wow. (laughs) 
That's infiltration. And reports were sent directly to J. Edgar Hoover about who was there, what was said, and what happened. Um, And I'll explain why in a little bit these reports were getting sent directly to J. Edgar. Can I ask you a quick question? I wonder if those five agents looked around, saw each other, and knew the other four were agents. Or they're like, oh, I better keep an eye on that guy. I wonder if they knew each other. (laughs) Met at the water cooler or lunch table or something. Um, Yeah, I'm sure they all went together. Yeah. Um, Now, J. Edgar Hoover was made the head of the FBI five years later, 1924. Mm -hmm. It was actually called just the BOI until 1935, but for the sake of ease, let's just call it the FBI. Okay. But he was made the head in 1924 because the Bureau was criticised for abuse of power during this whole communist raid thing. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the interesting things in in this story is as we go through, you have members of the members of Congress uh, and the intelligence agencies and even the White House in a lot of instances really doing things that they're not allowed to do. And the Supreme Court, in a lot of cases, calling bullshit on stuff that Congress and the White House are doing. Um, so there are instances here of the system working, your three houses, right. three branches. Um, and the FBI, and this is one of the fascinating things I learned back when I first read Tim Weiner's book on the FBI many years ago. For people who don't know Tim Weiner, Pulitzer Prize winning um, New York Times journalist, wrote two great books that I recommend everyone reads, um, a book on the CIA called Legacy of Ashes, and a book on the history of the FBI called Enemies. Uh, Very, very well-researched, very, very well um, bibliographied. Mm -hmm. uh, Very, very serious books on the history of these two organisations. Anyway, his book on on Hoover and the FBI, the thing that amazed me is that Hoover was doing illegal stuff pretty much from day one. (laughs) Blatantly. Doing illegal stuff. And he kept getting pulled up by the Supreme Court or by the Attorney General in many instances and being told, cut that shit out, it's illegal. Mm -hmm. And he would go, oh, right, okay, sorry, yep, all right. And then we'd just keep going back and doing it. Uh, Just be more careful to keep it a secret. From from the from the get go, and and before him too. So you know, before the time he was the head of the FBI. So, as I said, the bureau was criticised in 1924. The previous director, William Burns, had been fired by the new Attorney General Harlan Fisk Stone, another great name, right. who himself had replaced the Attorney General Harry Doherty, who was fired by the president uh, for the abuses of the Bureau of Investigation uh, during this stage where they were just running around rampantly uh, keeping files on people and arresting people. They had no legal authority to do it. They were just fucking doing it. They didn't care. We're on on a mission from God God here. (laughs) Hmm. I I just wanted to mention real quick, so you were saying by 1924 he's already breaking the laws, which is absolutely true, but I just wanted to throw this out. Even by 1921, when he's like someone's assistant, I'm trying to remember the exact position, um, for, for again... The, well, he's the head, 
He's the head of the radical. The division. radical division. Thank you. Yeah. So again, I'm just going to say FBI because it's easier. There are, like you said, abusing civil liberties. They're spying on labor union activists, and they're giving that information to corporate executives. So you, you're not supposed to do that. And they're also spying on communist leaders, and they're giving that information to conservative acti- activists as well as the Michigan State Police, which means they're getting involved in state level things. Again, not supposed to be doing that. Again, illegal. But like you said, they get caught. They get their hands slapped and he goes, yes, sir. Goes back to doing it. Okay, we need a new way not to get caught. Why do you think from just out of the gate, like you said, is he extreme? Is he willing to break the laws? Is he is he literally see himself as saving the country from the communist menace? I mean, is it just that mentality that this guy happens to have in this very powerful position? Yeah, I think... Hoover, from the get-go, had a messiah complex. Mm. Um, you know, he, he really did think his God put him on earth to save America, oh. uh, which in turns was saving the world. Right. He, he had a savior complex, a messiah complex. Of course, he was a very strange man also, J. Edgar. You know, there's uh, plenty of rumors about him, which we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, like Harry Anslinger, just on a crusade. He was a crusader. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll get more into some of that in a minute. I just wanted to say that during these Palmer raids, one of the officers they busted into right. was the brand new Soviet diplomatic officers oh, fuck. Uh, in Manhattan. Um, they just busted in to the Soviet officers and seized all of their files, trying to link them to these uh, 1919 bombings. Right. Of course, found nothing because the Russians had nothing to do with it. It was Italian anarchists. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, just getting back to, because I think this is a really important point to make, the relationship between the Americans and the Russians at this juncture. Americans invaded Russia um, after the Russian Revolution. Russians had done nothing to America, but the Americans invaded to try and put the Tsar back on the throne or the Romanovs back on the throne. Um, and here they are, busting into the newly opened diplomatic offices of the Soviets for absolute, with absolutely no evidence to justify mm-hmm. it. There was nothing tying these right. bombings they were looking, to the Russians. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they just broke in and seized all of their files. Right. Like, uh, uh, terrible abuse of power. Yeah. Um, by the way, Luigi Galliani, the Italian publisher of the uh, underground newspaper who was behind the bombings, mm-hmm. uh, was deported. They, they questioned him about the bombings. He said, I know nothing <laughs> about the bombings. Uh, the spicy meatball is all he could say. And they... Um, it's one of Fox's favourite sayings, by the way. He runs around the house going, this is such a spicy meatball. <laughs> I have no idea where the fuck he got that from, but it's one of his, one of his catchphrases. Right. Fox is, like a, Fox is like the little kid in an 80s sitcom. He just has a series of catchphrases <laughs> and loves to rub his junk in my hair. And I'm like, sneak up behind me, climb on my shoulders and rub his junk in my hair. And I'm sitting on the lunch. Cross between a kid from an 80s sitcom and some douchebag frat boy from, like, Porky's. Uh, it was going to end up on the Supreme Court. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is American. Boom. So that's there possible. There you go, my friend. Yeah. yeah. He's got an American passport. Um, wait, I, 
Yeah, so uh, so they questioned Galliani. He said, oh, it's not nothing about it. It's a spicy meatball. And so he was deported, never charged, deported, oh. and never set foot in America again. Jeez. So they had him, they didn't know it, and then they go around and, and harass and blame the wrong people. Um, out of all the people that were harassed in the Palmer raids, um, there was, you know, it was a very long list. I just looked at two of them to get their backstories. Did you read about Marcus Garvey? Uh, yes, but I want to finish okay, the Galliani please, story please, first. Please go ahead. Um, he gets deported. Mm-hmm. Back to Italy, June of 1919, with eight of his buddies. Um, Then there are more bombings after he's left in the US because there was a second round of bombings, as I said before, happened just afterwards. Um, Then uh, when Mussolini Mussolini comes to power in 1922, Galliani's charged with sedition in Italy, sentenced to 14 months in prison, gets rearrested in 1926. Uh, sent to the island of Pantelleria, um, mm. then to Lepari, and then to Messina. Finally, is allowed to return to the Italian mainland, where he lived until 1931, where he died of a heart attack, age 70. Damn. So um, you know, he he was a badass revolutionary. Galliani fought the Americans, and he fought against Mussolini. So Jeez. he's not very well known, but uh, should be better well known. He was, uh, yeah. I mean, depending on how you think about bombing people. I mean, on one hand, you go, okay, violence, there's no justification for violence. But then you go, well, when you're in a war situation or when you're in a situation where there are governments treating you brutally, maybe sometimes violence is the only recourse um, or is a valid recourse yeah. or just against give up. Yeah. oppression. Exactly, yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to have that argument either side. Sure, but, sure. Um, again, Americans are happy to justify the violence that they initiated in the revolution. They're happy to justify the violence they initiated in the Civil War. They're happy to justify violence they initiated in Vietnam, in Iraq, in yeah. Afghanistan. Uh, bombing, you know, well, I guess the Japanese kind of started it if you want to look at the actual bombing. We do. Um, yeah. Although we've talked about, we've right. talked about that before, economic, yeah. economic violence. Um, but anyway, so there you go, Galliani. Uh, yeah. Then they named a drink after him, Galliano. Uh, whenever you drink Galliano, it's, mm. uh, you're drinking the tears <laughs> of... Uh, a revolutionary. Galli- yeah. Galliani. That's, That's sexy. probably not true. I, I, I don't know why Galliano is called Galliano. Right. Let's just go with it. Might be. Sounds, sounds good enough. Yeah. Collusion, Ray. It's collusion. <laughs> it is collusion. Fucking Putin. Anyway. Uh, okay. Yeah. Get on to Marcus, Marcus Garvey. Yeah. So, again, so we've already covered the fact that Hoover is, seems to be a radical in his own right. He's, he's uh, got the Messiah complex. He's saving his country from communism, which really is not the threat that everybody think it, that thinks it is. There are anarchists, there are bombs going around, but there's also people who are having strikes just trying to improve their lives. But the point is, Hoover comes along, he's a radical in his own right. He, when, and this is later, but just to give you an idea of what this guy's like, he, I think he fires off, he fires all the female agents in the FBI. It's no place for women. Um, and believe it or not, he's actually racist as well because we get to Marcus Garvey, and I'll just do the short version of this. 
Marcus Garvey gets caught up in the um, Pomerades. He was born in Jamaica in 1887, so he's not white. Uh, he grows up, he's a publisher, he's a political leader, he's an orator, he, he creates the, uh, and he's the first president of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and the African Co Communities League. So what is he trying to do? He's trying to improve, he's trying to promote the social, political, and economic freedom of black people. Good for him. But that probably puts him on um, Hoover's radar. Um, one thing he's going to do in June of 1919 um, is to start... Um, the Black Star Line of Delaware, which which is a, a shipping and passenger line. So that doesn't really go all that smooth. They raise some money, they sell some stock, but they're having trouble getting the ship. And that comes back into the story later. But the point is, he's going around, he's a lecturer, he's, he's trying to lift up black people, uh, you know, have them to improve themselves. Of course, this is going to upset the whiteies uh, in the country. And there's a man named Edwin Kilroe who is the assistant district attorney for the county of New York. And he investigates Garvey several times. And they don't come up with any charges, but he pulls him in several times and questions him. And that could probably easily be considered harassment. But they don't get anywhere. So, in October of 1919, Garvey is visited by a man named George Tyler, while Garvey is in his office. Tyler walks in and goes, Look, Kilroy, Kilroy Rowe sent me to get rid of you. Nothing personal. Tyler pulls out a 38 caliber revolver, shoots four times. Garvey is hit, but he survives. Tyler is arrested because even though you're, you know, you've been sent by the district attorney, assistant district attorney, you still can't just shoot people. Tyler is arrested, but he does Jesus. kill himself by jumping out of a window because he knows he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. Garvey goes on, works on his organizations, build up his, me his member base. He's got about 4 million members now. But here's the important thing about Garvey. Even though he's trying to improve the lot of black people in America, he himself, and he says this all the time, it's in his publications, it's in his books, it's in his speeches, he doesn't trust communism. He doesn't like communism. He feels that communism is probably, if it comes, is probably going to benefit the white people with their own economic problems, but it's probably going to keep black people down just like every other system of government has. And he feels that the Communist Party of America wants to use the African-American vote to smash and overthrow the capitalistic white majority. And he's probably right. So the point is, if Hoover did detailed information on this guy, yes, he's black and he's trying to help uh, fellow blacks, which is bad enough for Hoover, but he would have found out that the guy is not a communist. He's actually against the communists. But it doesn't matter. He's black and he's, and he's rocking the, the white American boat. So he's got to go. So the Hoover chases him down as much as he can, but he just can't get anything to stick on this guy. But eventually um, he is going to be charged with mail fraud, which has to do with um, selling stocks for his black star line, whatever. So they're finally able to pin something on him. And all Hoover cares about is getting this guy convicted of something so they can deport him. So his trial begins in May of 1923. He Garvey defends himself because he's an educated man, but still that's not a good idea. His trial is over in June of 1923. He is sentenced to five years and a $1,000 uh, fine. Um, he starts serving his jail time in February of 1925, but 
the rest of the sentence is commuted by President Calvin Coolidge himself in November of 1927. Because even Coolidge, when this was brought before him, going, whoa, 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 this was a complete sham. Due process was messed up. This was harassment. You broke so many laws getting this guy into court, not to mention shooting him twice just because you were trying to kill him. He does get deported, deported back to Jamaica, but even Calvin Coolidge says you way cross the line and he commutes his sentence. That's just one example of what Hoover was doing during the um, raids because he doesn't give a fuck about the law. It's all about saving America. Mm, and, and who was inspired by a Marcus Garvey's speech that he attended? Ooh, um, I feel like I should know this. Who? A little boy called Adolf Hitler. Really? Are you fucking with me? No. You're fucking uh, with me. Ho, 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 Ho Chi Minh. We talked about Marcus Garvey oh, on the yeah. Ho Chi Minh oh, episode. God, when Ho Chi right. Minh was in New York, he saw Marcus Garvey speak, and it was part of wow. his uh, education. Wow. Um, by the way, uh, Galliano, the drink is named after Giuseppe Galliano, mm-hmm. who was an officer in the Royal Italian Army during the First Italo Ethiopian War. Right. Wow. Hey, not 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 Galliani, unfortunately. Um, just one other victim of the raids. Well, attempted victim of the raids. Did you read about Felix Frankfurter? Uh, no. Let me just do this real quick because this is a white guy. This is different, and this guy's a lawyer. And but but still, because he is fighting back legally against the raids, he gets into um, he gets into Hoover's uh, crosshairs. So he's, he was born in Austria, eighteen eighty two, graduate of the Harvard Law School. He goes to a private firm for a while, comes back to Harvard as a professor. And during that time as a professor, he uh, is a counsel for the National Consumers League, which is trying to argue for minimum wage and restricted hours, you know, that kind of stuff. Again, he's trying to change American work culture. That's going to put him on the the radar of Hoover. And um, in 1919, he chaired a meeting in support of American recognition of the newly created Soviet Union. That's going to get him on the radar of Hoover. He helps, he helps um, found the American Civil Liberties Union, which, as we all know, is to defend and preserve the individual rights and liberties guaranteed to every person in this country by the Constitution and the laws of the United States. And we know how Hoover feels about the laws. So that's definitely going to piss off Hoover. Uh, he goes on to do other things. He, he, he fights uh, the raids. And he um, he helps people with uh, he helps people that are striking. He tries to mediate. He's actually appointed by a presidential commission to help mediate strikes because this is at the end of World War One, where we can't have any strikes because it's going to affect the war um, the war effort. But he's fighting the Palmer raids. He's trying to help the strikers, uh, the people that are striking, and he does get connected to. Um, uh, to communists who are doing their own thing, but he does become accused of being a communist. Hoover tries to take him down. It's not going to work for him. And this guy is going to end up being on the Supreme Court. But even though he's white, even though he's a lawyer, even though he is college educated and successful and has connections to various White Houses, Hoover still tries to take him down for changing the American landscape in, in legal matters and social matters and in business matters. He's, he's, he's the one that got away from Hoover. Wow. 
Well, um, good stories, Ray. Um, just speaking about the Communist Party's influence on American life at this yeah. juncture, Hoover himself would write later in his life that the Communist Party's influence on American life was virtually non-existent in the <laughs> early 1920s. But didn't sound like it at the time. Um, yeah. Greatest threat to mankind is the way they were positioning it at the time because everything is always the, the great- greatest threat we have ever faced. <laughs> or this is the most dangerous no- man in America kind of thing. Yeah, because there's, there's no value in saying, well, you know, it's not that dangerous. Like, it's a little bit dangerous. Yeah. Keep but an really, eye on it. Yeah. No one's... No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We just have a watching brief on that. That's not going to get headlines. You're never going to get headlines with, oh, look, right. on a scale of one to ten, one a, being the lowest, ten being the highest, it's probably a three right now, three, maybe three even a, a two. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, no one's no one's paying attention to Who that. Cares? You're, you're, you're exactly. trying to build a career here. Right. Um, and that's the thing with, with Hoover as well as Anslinger, right? Yeah. Yeah, these guys were probably crusade, genuine crusaders, but they were also trying to build a career, and they knew that the way to build a career is to get press, and the way to get press is to make extreme statements. This is the way that Trump yes. became president. Say oh, extreme yeah. things, and you will get wall-to-wall media coverage in free, America. Free coverage. Because it's, the, because, the media, because it's good for the media, right? Yeah. The media wants you to say extreme things, because then they can print it or put it on television because right. then people will watch and read and listen and you get to sell advertisers. It's the economics that we, we've talked about a zillion times on the show, the basic economics of saying ridiculously extreme things like right. collusion, collusion <laughs> for the last two years. If you don't believe there was collusion, you're a complete fucking moron. Now they're all going, well, we never said collusion. No, no, we never said that. No, No, as you said, you were the ones that said collusion. You you said it. We said... I was trying to talk you out of it. He's not completely innocent. Right. Fucking. Yeah. I accused him of douchery. Hysterical. Not collusion. Yeah. Yeah. Douchery, sir. It's a (laughs) medical condition. Bad case of the douchery. Now, um, but, uh, while all this is going on, 1990 um, through to 1922, as we said earlier, there are strikes happening in steel, in coal, railway, you name it. Right. There are strikes happening all over the United States. Um, the Bureau has is, is got files on most of the people involved in these strikes, digging into their private lives, digging into their finances, trying to figure out if they're communists. Right. And they're sharing information, as you said earlier, um, that they come up with, with these people's employers, but also with the state police, with uh, anyone they think might be able to act on it. Because, again, the <laughs> FBI oh, had fairly limited authority when it came to federal law enforcement. They're supposed to assist federal law right. enforcement, not uh, run off on their own arresting people. Um now, I mentioned before that uh, you know, the Attorney General got fired, as did the Director of the Bureau in 24. Part of this had to do with revelations in 1923 that Bureau agents had been monitoring members of Congress. Oh, shit. Including breaking into their offices and wiretapping <laughs> their offices. 
Because these members of Congress had played roles in the congressional investigation into the Teapot Dome scandal. This is fucking... This is this is uh, uh, Watergate level right. stuff here. Right. They were breaking into the bureau. The FBI was breaking into the offices of congressmen and tapping their phones. Right. Recording their conversations um, as political payback. Now the teapot dome scandal. How much do you know about that, Ray? Um. All I know is, um, let's see, I guess it was this during President Hardy's uh, time, the Secretary of Interior. Um, I, won't, I won't do too much, but basically, um, I think somebody within his administration was leasing naval, Navy petroleum reserves to a company without doing due diligence and without trying to get companies to bid on it. He'd give them a very low uh, uh, price, and I guess they probably gave him a shit ton of cash for that. And so there's a whole, but there's a, this goes on for like two years, I believe, where there's this corruption in Harding's uh, White House or is in it and his administration. Yeah. Um, the, the secretary of the interior, Albert Bacon Fall. <laughs> Bacon. Bacon. Was his yeah. middle name. Yeah. Bacon. Grandfather to Kevin. He yeah, uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, Kevin Bacon. Bacon. Yeah, I get. I, I got it. Yeah, Kevin Bacon. Yeah, okay. um, not a fan. Very famous. Very famous uh, jurist before he became uh, the Secretary of the Interior. Oh. Successfully defended the uh, accused killer of Sheriff Pat Garrett. Wow. Pat Garrett killed uh, the outlaw Billy the Kid. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, that that the cowboy whose books I'm reading at the moment, Chaz yeah. Seringo, uh, I mentioned to you on a show the other day, uh, he worked with Pat Garrett um, hunting down Billy the Kid as well before he joined the Pinkertons. Anyway, uh, the Teapot Dome scandal, yeah, it was, it was probably the biggest political scandal in American history before the Watergate scandal. Right. He had been uh, leasing leasing uh, uh, this these navy oil reserves at a place called uh, Teapot Dome in Wyoming to private oil companies um, secretly without any private right. bidding. Um, and he would so Fall Bacon oh Bacon became the first presidential cabinet member to go to prison. Wow, good for him. The uh, the guys paying bribes to him mm-hmm. uh, got away with it. Uh, yeah, nothing. private sector. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nothing. You, you can bribe a politician, <laughs> but you can't take a bribe. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but you can't take it. That's right. Uh, so that was so that uh, that was was that was part of the, the whole hullabaloo. This whole the fact that the bureau was wiretapping and breaking into members of Congress who were investigating this. Um, somehow Harding d- didn't get caught up in all of it. He got away with it. Right. Um, now, Congress, after this, Congress passed legislation, which is still around today, giving subpoena power to the House and the Senate yep. to review the tax records of any American citizen 
regardless of their elected or appointed position <laughs> and regardless of White House interference. Huh. Now, huh. got a feeling that this may soon be relevant. I have no idea why, uh, but <laughs> just, just a hunch. What if the person's being audited? May... What if the person's being audited? Yeah, I don't see how that would <laughs> really have anything to do with it. Anywho. Oh, anyway, so yeah. the new Attorney General, Harlan Fisk Stone, yes. cleaned house and gave orders that the Bureau of Investigation should not concern itself with the political or other opinions of individuals, but only with their conduct and then yeah. only such conduct as is forbidden by the laws of the United States. There's an idea. We don't, we don't care what their polit- politics are, <laughs> their political views are, what parties they belong to, what meetings they go to. None of our business unless it's against the law. Is right. it against the law? No, then shut the fuck up. We right. don't care. Go do your fucking job. Right. <laughs> By the way, I'm appointing J. Edgar Hoover as director. What it, what? Do you understand your new marching orders, J. Edgar? Yes, sir. We are not to pay any attention to people's political leanings. That's right. You got it? Yep, got it. Crystal clear. Crystal clear, Attorney General Stone. Well, so the story's over. Hoover gets his marching orders. He obeys the law. Boom. Bob's your uncle. We're done. Yeah, except not so much. So Hoover gets around this by telling his agents to continue to attend communist meetings incognito, but to send him a private memo, private and confidential, to the director, which Hoover would then keep in his private file stash in his house... Oh, my God. And they never made it into the FBI files. So Fuck me. if the Attorney General or anyone else turns around and says, what has the FBI got on the comments? He could go, the FBI has nothing. <laughs> I see nothing. And I hear not nothing. not be lying. Right. Because the FBI didn't have anything. He had it personally in his pers- <laughs> personal dirt file stash. Oh, my God. Which was very quickly destroyed when he died by his longtime secretary, mm. um, which we'll get into. We're going to, we're going to, don't, if people think we're like, we're not going to skim over the Hoover story. We're, I'm trying to get through the, into the HUAC story, um, but we will go back and then do, yeah, do the whole hard. Hoover story and yeah. the whole CIA story. Do it hard. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it, what, once, like Hoover got hard around right. Pretty Boys. What? Once we're done, hey, what? once we're done, just let me know when we're done because I want to finish off Palmer because it's kind of a funny, sad ending for him. Oh, funny, funny, sad Palmer. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, we we can we can um, cut it line, cut it there. Just I, you know, I was just going to end with yeah. saying Hoover was a rabid anti-communist who was absolutely convinced that the communists threatened America's security and he didn't care what the White House said. He didn't care what the Attorney General said. He didn't care what the laws were. He was on a mission from God. 
And by God, I mean Abraham Lincoln sitting on his throne in Washington, D.C. That's so wrong. That's so wrong. So let, let me finish off Palmer here. So during the Palmer raids, information is gathered by Hoover um, and given to him. And one of the things that Palmer is told is that the next, the following May Day, when, uh, when you have May Day where you celebrate all the labor unions and things like that, May Day of 1920, there's going to be a major attempt to overthrow the U.S. government. So Palmer prepares, he works up the newspaper, he gets the newspapers, he gets them on their side. Uh, they, they get ready with the cops, they get ready with the National Guard or whatever. But May Day 1920 comes and nothing happens. So the newspapers went from from supporting them completely because again it was selling um, uh, ep- it was selling papers, they tore into Palmer the very next day when nothing happened, and they just ridiculed him for for days if not weeks. And again, they're just doing this to sell newspapers because they don't care what's going on. But because it nothing happened, it helped calm the country down. And again, like the guy I mentioned earlier, Felix Frankfurter um, said that he endorsed a report that said. The Justice Justice Department had committed utterly illegal acts by those charged with the highest duty of enforcing the laws, including entrapment, police brutality, prolonged incommunicado detention, and violations of due process in court. But the point is, it's not that Palmer was this dedicated American servant. He was vying for the 1920 presidential ticket on the Republic for the Republicans. And because he was embarrassed on the May Day, it ruined everything for him and his chances were over. So almost like with Hoover and almost like with Harry Anslinger, he was gearing up, he was making it radical, he was being loud to get everyone's attention because he wanted to run for president. Yeah, Palmer wanted to what well, Palmer wanted to be president and um, unfortunately didn't work out for no. him that well. Um, I also just wanted to uh, finish up uh, a little bit with uh, Mr. Bacon, yeah, Albert Bacon Fall. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, his acceptance of bribes for that uh, during congressional hearings uh, around this, he explained the concept of oil field drainage with a line that was later used in the film There Will Be Blood, which I thought was a good line to go out on. Sir, if you have a milkshake and I have a milkshake and my straw reaches across the room, I'll end up drinking your milkshake. (laughs) didn't say I understood it. it I just thought it was a good line. Yeah. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. As soon as I get home, the first thing I'm going to do is punch your mama in the mouth. From the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba, the purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. 